Let's turn to our passage today in Matthew 6. Uh, It's on your sheet there, or if you don't have a sheet, you can look at the Bible. It's in Matthew 6, verses 16 through 18. And there we read, when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. I think I can safely say today that we are unique today. I bet you there's not a whole lot of churches talking about this topic today. I just have this feeling. Uh, And perhaps... They never will. And if we're honest with ourselves, at least if I'm honest with myself, neither would I, you know, but for one thing, which I'll mention later. Uh, Depending on your church background, you may have never heard the word fast or fasting in a sermon, except for maybe the reference to prayer and fasting, but never talked about in a sermon. Or... You may be from the other side, and your memories of the practice in your church are not pleasant ones. Uh, First, it might be good to go back and review where we are in the Sermon on the Mount. The latter part of Matthew Matthew 5 deals with the hypocrisy of the scribes and the Pharisees. And the first part of Matthew 6 deals with our Christian walk, how we conduct ourselves, our relationship to God, and how that relationship affects our lives, our practices, in what we might call personal righteousness. Okay? Chapter 6, therefore, begins with, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward of your Father who is in heaven. Jesus then proceeds to show us that our Christian walk may be divided up into three main areas. First, doing good, or as King James calls, alms. Uh, This is what we do with others. And then there's our prayer life, what we do with God. Today we're going to talk about personal discipline expressed in terms of fasting. This is what I do with myself. Now, dealing with the emotions, some of you may be thinking, so why fast? I mean, if nobody else is talking about it, why should we? Uh, You know, Kent, God has blessed our society with an abundance of food and supersized fries and all-you-can-eat restaurants, right? Or you may take the high road. Perhaps when you saw the bulletin today and the message, maybe you were looking for one of the leaders to say, you know, really, isn't there some theological argument that fasting is just Old Testament legalism, not really applicable to us today? Uh, Let me give a couple of disclaimers before I get into some other stuff. First of all, I didn't bring this up. Jesus did. All right? Uh, But more seriously, there's a medical concern. Some of you may have been given advice that you cannot fast. That's okay. I'm not suggesting that you should uh, just because of the examples we give today. 
Let's start with some biblical balance. This is an overarching principle that we apply in uh, dealing with God's Word. Uh, applying God's Word in, in life never happens in a vacuum. There's always vacuum. There's always context, always circumstances, always human factors and frailties, and a lot of times imbalances involved. We should start with understanding that the Word of God is inerrant. It's cohesive. It's coherent. It's consistent. It never contradicts itself. However, we've got to acknowledge that as the writers of the Bible uh, were dealing with particular circumstances, they said particular things that applied to those circumstances and possibly imbalances among the hearers of their Word or the people who were reading their letters. Okay? Now, these, peop- these passages that we read today are still profitable for us because they provide guidance and warnings for similar circumstances. When we, when we look at a difficult passage, the best way to avoid getting out of balance ourselves is to balance that particular passage with other scriptures to get the full picture or the whole counsel of God. So, for example, I was coming over here today and I was listening to a radio program, you know, Sunday morning radio program, and the, the, the guy was talking about how the Bible often refers to Jesus as the firstborn. Therefore, the implication is he isn't eternal. But when you read the whole counsel of God, you see otherwise, and you, you read it in a reasonable fashion. But there's also some other examples. There's a seemingly uh, conflict There's a seeming conflict between faith and works throughout Scripture. In the Old Testament, it might be between between the prophets and the priests. But really, there's no conflict. It's rather that when they're speaking prophetically, they're speaking at a time when priestly teachings were in vogue, and vice versa. More clearly in the New Testament, we see this brought out when we read from James that faith without works is dead, right? But we also compare that to Paul who says, you're saved by faith, not by works, lest any man should boast. But this is really not all that difficult to figure out that we're not talking about a conflict. We're talking about two sides of the same coin. You see, Paul is talking about the basis of our faith, saved by faith, not works. On the other hand, James is talking about the evidence of our faith. If you're saved, you're going to be doing good works. Okay, so your faith without your works is dead. Now this takes us back to the question of fasting. Uh, In this passage here, Jesus is obviously dealing with disciples who like to let people know that they were fasting through their clothes, their facial expressions, or whatever. However, in light of the general disregard of fasting today, Maybe it would be a good idea for us to take a look at what Scripture says about fasting. So on your sheet, we're at the place where it says, the place of fasting in our Christian walk. In the Old Testament, the Jews were commanded to fast once a year. However, the Jews would voluntarily fast several times, usually dependent on circumstances like emergencies or threats or, 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 or problems. We'll go go back to the Old Testament in a little bit, quite a bit. Uh, In the New Testament, though, we see clearly that the Pharisees were at that time fasting twice a week. And John the Baptist and his disciples 
fasted regularly. However, the disciples of Jesus did not. And in Matthew 9, we read, Then the disciples of John came to him, Jesus, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Okay? Now, remember, Jesus started this passage in Matthew 6 with, When you fast. And that follows identical statements about when you give to the needy your alms and when you pray. Now, Jesus makes clear that you can give and pray with the wrong motives. But does anybody seriously argue that giving and praying are legalistic or not applicable today? I mean, you get my drift. Same context. The apostles absolutely saw fasting as part of their walk, part of their lives. Before the church at Antioch sent out Paul and Barnabas on their missionary journey, they prayed and fasted. And when those two ordained elders in the early churches, they prayed and fasted for them. Paul said that he fasted often. So with his clear teaching and practice of Jesus and the subsequent practice of the early church, it's a stretch to argue that this is simply an Old Testament practice applied legalistically today. Jesus expected his followers to fast. In fact, he did so himself for 40 days. We see historical examples of some of the reformers like the Wesleys and, and Whitfield who fasted. Uh, different segments of the church have continued to practice, perhaps mechanically and, and, and without reference to a purpose for fasting. And this may be why fasting has largely been forgotten by certain Christians. Among evangelicals, that's us, uh, no one really talks about this much. You know, you see very few references of this. So it might be reasonable to assume that few evangelicals actually fast, at least for the reasons given. You know, they might for a weight loss program or for other health benefits, of which there are several, but not, that's not a true fast. Fasting seems to have dropped out of our Christian vocabulary and probably our consciousness as if it's obsolete. Therefore, it's for the current generation, you know, the younger you are, the less concept you have of fasting altogether. It's basically a foreign concept. Uh, we've even lost sight of why we don't fast today. Because if you read the commentators from 50 and 60 years ago, they make clear that, disapprovingly, that evangelicals ran away from fasting as a reaction to Catholicism. And like, unlike physics, where there's always, uh, to every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction, in matters of faith in the church, there's usually an overreaction. Now, there may be pockets of believers today who engage in prayer and fasting, but I, sec I suspect they, that few pay much attention to it. However, we cannot pick and choose our scriptures. Here it is in the Sermon on the Mount, right in front of us, so we cannot ignore it. So, let's go to the general purpose of fasting here. Again, 
we're going to take a step back here and think about the nature of man. By that, I mean mankind. We are made up of body, mind, and spirit. And those three interact so intimately that we distinguish them because of their differences, but we can never separate them because of their interrelationship, a lot like the Trinity. It's clear to Christians that the condition of the body has an effect on our mind and our spirit. When you suffer physically due to illness or injury, we tend to pray more intentionally and diligently. However, our bodily condition can also be intentionally altered in order to sharpen our focus. When we eat, think about this, blood rushes to the intestines to help with digestion, right? But that means it's coming from somewhere, including the brain. So, Thanksgiving dinner, you're stuffed. You're probably not in a position to pay much attention. You just want to veg out in front of the tube, right? That's the physical result. Uh, now when, I, uh, uh, when I think about this, I, I apply this in school, a, a wise student with a, an upcoming big exam or a final will not eat a big meal right before the test, right? When I'm going to court for a contested matter, I've got to listen to every single word and be ready to object immediately or else some inadmissible evidence may come in. So I don't eat before I go to trial. Okay? It's just common sense. Now, fasting shares this common effect as to alertness and discernment. It helps us focus and be more receptive to the leading of the Holy Spirit. Now, many consider fasting to be a personal discipline, and that's okay, but a problem can arise when fasting is viewed as a practice done for the sake of itself, as with any discipline. And that's where the legalism and the mechanical practice takes over, resulting in the contrary, complete avoidance of that particular practice. So we can say in general that the definition of fasting is the voluntary abstinence from food or perhaps other things by Christians for special spiritual purposes. Doesn't that sound wonderful? Okay. But so what? What is a special spiritual purpose? So, to answer that question, we've got to go through a couple of laundry lists. It's a good idea to take a look at what does the Word of God say as far as examples. Uh, we're going to talk first about types of fast, and then we'll get on to specific purposes for fasting. One is other than food, okay? So, in a broader sense, fasting uh, can be defined as a voluntary denial of any legitimate function for a spiritual purpose or activity. So you could fast from distractions like the phone or media or all electronic devices. That'd be an extreme one. Uh, perhaps you're fasting from talking to others in order to focus on talking to God in isolation. Maybe you're fasting from sleep in order to spend more time in prayer. Uh, you know, I've got no criticism with any of these things as long as they're done for the purpose of drawing closer to God and discernment of His will and in accordance with what we're just reading about in Matthew 6, that we're not trying to alert people to the fact that we're fasting. So, you know, you probably don't want to walk into the coffee shop for your Bible study and say, well, I'm fasting from Facebook for the next two hours, you know? <laughs> That's probably not the idea here. Uh, yeah, same things. But 
because the passage here in Matthew 6 deals with food, that's where we're going to park today, okay? Uh, So what are the different types of fasting? One is food only. This would be the normal and most common form, which I mean, by which I mean we're not fasting from liquids. Why? Because most of us mortals can't survive without fluid after about three days. Okay? Uh, and this is evidence, this is implied in the fast of Jesus. You know, he was fully man. And so it says there in Matthew 4 and in Luke 4 that he was hungry. And he ate nothing, no reference to drink at all. So we can infer that he was not fasting from liquid. Uh, And so it would be normal when you fast to drink water or perhaps fruit juices. That would be appropriate. But there are absolute fasts from food and water found in Scripture. Uh, Ezra uh, mourned the unfaithfulness of the exiles and went without water. Uh, Esther, uh, when she asked the Jews to to pray and fast for her, said, do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. Uh, Paul, when he was blinded for three days, did not eat or drink anything. But that was for a very limited period of time. There may be supernatural fasts in, in Scripture, We see this uh, when uh, Moses ate no bread and drank no water for 40 days, according to Deuteronomy 10. And it may be that Elijah did the same thing when he went to the site of Moses' fast, uh, recorded in 1 Kings 19. But if these happened, they required God's intervention and are not repeatable absent his direct involvement. Okay. Uh, in Matthew 6, we're talking about another type, a private fast, one where we don't let other people know. That's what we practice on the personal level. But there are congregational fasts. Joel 2 records uh, that we should blow the, they should blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation. And Luke uh, records in Acts 13 that the saints in the church in Antioch we're worshiping the Lord and fasting. There are even national fasts, okay? Judah, uh, when Judah was being evaded, invaded, uh, King Jehoshaphat resolved to inquire of the Lord and he proclaimed a fast for all Judah. For all Judah. Uh, we've got examples in our own history in America. Uh, James Madison, uh, Kathy sent me a, a story about John Adams calling a couple of fasts. Honest Abe called three national fasts during the Civil War. Now, I have some concerns about uh, a president who would call a national fast today. I'd be delighted if they did, but would people have a clue as to what we're doing? I don't know. However, think about our situation today. As Mike's described in the last uh, couple of weeks, as we've seen on the TV, if you bother to watch, um, I think it would be totally appropriate for a Christian leader to call the church, perhaps in the United States or the whole world, to pray and fast. Now, if we're ever going to start praying and fasting due to our circumstances, can you think of a more appropriate time than now? Let's go on to the specific purposes of of fasting. One 
purpose that we can quickly dispose of, I'm speaking negatively here, is to gain favor or acceptance from God. We have our favor and acceptance from God based upon the work of Christ on the cross. Uh, It's not our righteousness. It's not our works. It's not our fasting. It's His. I'm, I'm uh, going to borrow heavily here from a guy named Don Whitney who wrote a book about spiritual disciplines. Don came to our men's advance several years ago. Uh, and he gave us several specific purposes for fasting. The first one, and probably the one you'd think about first, is to strengthen prayer. You know, it seems like fasting's always connected to prayer in some way. It gives us a passion when we pray. And in essence, it sharpens the edge of our intercession when there's something important or urgent. When uh, Ezra was about to lead exiles on a 900-mile march without the aid of a military guard, pretty dangerous undertaking, he called for a fast. And they fasted and implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. There's other examples on on your sheet there from Nehemiah, from Daniel, the church in Antioch. Uh, and, you know, this makes the wholesale abandonment of fasting by evangelicals even more inexplicable. Again, if not now, then when? Another purpose for, for fasting is for God's guidance. Uh, when the men of the tribe of Judah, or tribe of Benjamin, committed great sin, the other 11 tribes went to war against them. However, despite the 11 tribes' significant superiority in their force, they lost their battles not once but twice until they sought the Lord's guidance through fasting and then were given the victory. Paul and Barnabas appointed these elders in the new churches only after prayer and fasting in Acts 14. Yeah, while we can't guarantee clear guidance, but we can be more receptive to the guidance that we receive through the Holy Spirit uh, as a result of fasting. Another purpose, uh, uh, and a spiritual purpose, is for expression of grief. Uh, we see this in several places. The fast in Judges 20 it was not just for guidance, but these guys who had gone to battle against Benjamin had lost 40,000 of their brothers, so they were grieving over those losses. When King Saul and his sons were killed by the Philistines, the men of Jabesh Gilead returned recovered their bodies for burial. They mourned and fasted for seven days. And then in the next chapter, when David hears about the deaths of Saul and Jonathan, he and his men mourned, wept, and fasted. Uh, Christians uh, have also fasted in grief for sin. We need to be careful here again. While there are consequences for sin, for our sin, we cannot pay for them with our fast because, again, Jesus has already done that. If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, however, does that mean that all we need to do is mouth the words, just admit, and it's all good? Let me just say this. Admission is not the equivalent of repentance. A flippant admission of wrongdoing or a sin, presuming forgiveness as a right, is dishonoring to Christ. Now, we are not to punish or flagellate ourselves over sin, but grief over sin is a part of true repentance. A little practical issue here. Fasting over each and every one of our sins could be a problem 
for some of us, I might not ever eat again, you know. However, voluntary and genuine fasting over sin can be an appropriate part of confession and repentance. Sometimes words cannot express our grief. Fasting doesn't earn us that forgiveness, but it can express the grief and repentance that our words cannot. Uh, We can also fast as an expression of grief for the sins of others. When uh, Saul was trying to kill David, Jonathan uh, fasted because he was grieved over the shameful treatment of his father for David. Uh, It's appropriate for us to pray for the sins or to fast for the sins of others, even brothers and sisters in this church, Uh, even for our nation, even for the current leaders of our nation. Another purpose for fasting is deliverance or protection. Several biblical examples here, uh, mostly when threatened by enemies or circumstances. Again, Jehoshaphat proclaimed a fast for all of Judah, and everybody came together when the army was approaching them. Uh, Esther's fast was clearly from, for protection from the wrath of King Xerxes. This can also be personal. David's appeal for relief from enemies in Psalm 109 included a longer fast. He said, my, my knees are weak through fasting. My body has become gaunt with no fat. And so if we find ourselves being persecuted, being ridiculed or for our faith, we might be tempted to react, maybe fight fire with fire. But a more biblical response would be an appeal to God, perhaps with fasting, for protection and deliverance. Another would be to express repentance. Repentance is a change of heart resulting in a change in action in our lives. Therefore, fasting can signal a commitment to that change or obedience. The Israelites expressed repentance by fasting and confession in 1 Samuel 7. God commanded his people in Joel 2, Return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. Rinse your heart, not your garments. You know, the most thorough fast to express repentance is recorded in Jonah 3, where the Ninevites declared a fast. When their king heard of it, he decreed, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn his wrath away so that we might not perish. Now there's a caution here. You know, fasting is not the same as repentance. Fasting or any spiritual discipline can be simply a dead work if we mechanically practice the discipline without forsaking or turning from our sin. A Puritan by the name of Thomas Barton once said, In vain will ye fast and pretend to be humbled for your sins and make confession of them, if our love of sin be not turned into hatred. Um, Mike got to take a survey last week, so I'm going to take one, just one, one question. Raise your hand if you want to be known as a hater. Not a lot of takers for haters here, huh? 
Understand, that was a trick question, admittedly. All right. Uh, but if you, if you listen to the culture, you will find that the word hater has become a pejorative. People will say, I'm not like those haters, right? Have you heard that? Several times. Okay. And yes, it is wrong to hate people. We got that. But they don't say that. If you're a hater, you're wrong. Well, let me ask you a question. Do you hate it? The act of people's heads being torn off or being burned alive? Do you hate the act of young girls being used as sex slaves or raped? Not just in, in the Middle East, but here in the USA. Do you hate the murder of children in the womb? I hope you can understand this is a little more nuanced than a single word. I hope that we are all haters of sin, and particularly our own. But the point here is, the point we're trying to make with all this, is that without hatred of our sin, our fasting in repentance is pretty much worthless, pretty much in vain. Okay, the next purpose we're going to look at is to humble. Sometimes people pray on their knees or prostrate on the floor uh, in order to reflect their humility before God. But we might ask, why should I fast all day? Isn't that a bit extreme? Well, John Calvin asked a little different question, at least asked a little different way. He said, why not? For since fasting is a holy exercise both for the humbling of men and for the confession of humility, why should we use it less than the ancients did in similar need? King David put on sackcloth and humbled himself with fasting. Even wicked King Ahab figured this out. After Elijah pronounced God's judgment on Ahab and Jezebel, Ahab put on sackcloth and fasted. So much so... And apparently, authentically, that God noticed his humility and stayed or stopped the judgment for the time being. There's some others listed on your sheet there. I'm going to skip down to, to overcome temptation. You know, perhaps the most famous fast we've referred to today is in Matthew 4, 40 days in the wilderness uh, where Jesus was fasting. Now, nowhere in Scripture does it tell us we are to fast for 40 days or three days or any number of days or any period of time. However, that doesn't mean we can't learn from that particular instance of fasting. Jesus was being prepared as fully man by an extended fast for the strongest temptation that he would face until the garden at Gethsemane. So fasting is a way to overcome or prepare for temptation. We all have times of struggle with temptation. Traveling away from home, the start of school or any new job, anytime we're introduced to new people or new experiences. The fasting might be fear. It might be a physical attraction. Uh, it might be to change our priorities or to compromise on what's best for our households. But when the temptation is exceptionally strong, should we not consider exceptional measures like fasting in order to prepare for or overcome the temptation and renew our commitment to Christ. 
Finally, uh, the last one that I have anyway, and there may be others, uh, legitimate for fasting, would be to express praise. You know, fasting is not just for our trials and our difficult situations. If you read Luke 2, you know the story about after Jesus has been born, you see a, a, a story of the long life of a woman in a very short passage. You know, Anna had been married for seven years, we, as, we presume or we assume when she was very young, and then a widow for the rest of her long, long life. And she was there when Mary and Joseph brought Jesus to the temple for sacrifice. And Luke records that she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer day and night. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. So fasting can be used in worship as an expression of pleasure and joy in the Lord. It honors God when the joy and pleasure we have in praise is greater than the pleasure we derive from food when seeking Him is more important than eating. And Christians have often fasted in preparation for the Lord's Supper, not only for repentance and humility, but also to focus our adoration on the Lamb of God, sacrificed for all. Now, a few of us are going to go to the links that Anna did in her devotion. But can we not spend a mealtime in prayer and fasting and praise? I'm going to give you just a few short principles here to kind of wrap this up, uh, just to kind of guide us. And the first one is, the important thing to remember is that fasting is a privilege. It is not an obligation that we carry out mechanically. See this in Scripture. Uh, Zechariah 7 records that Israel was fasting every fifth and seventh month for 70 years to remember the destruction of the temple. And now they were wondering, since you know, they'd returned to the land and the temple was being rebuilt, should they continue that practice? Uh, and so they, the men went from Bethel to Jerusalem to inquire of the Lord. And there the prophet told them, Say to all the people of the land and the priest, When you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh month for these 70 years, was it for me that you fasted? That's called a rhetorical question. He knew the answer. Their fast had become mechanical rituals instead of humble entreaty or praise. So, lastly, or likewise, fasting is not a means of manipulating God for our own purposes. Just like with prayer, if you fast, you certainly hope that God will bless or whatever. Uh, just like when you pray. Uh, when we pray and fast with the right motivation, we can be sure that He will but not necessarily the way that we're asking or the way that we anticipate. Um, secondly, fasting must always have a God-centered purpose, not a self-centered one. This is a matter between you and Him. That's why Jesus warns here about not allowing others to, to notice that you're fasting. Uh, if you simply cannot fast with the faith that you will find joy for one of the purposes we have discussed here today, then go ahead and eat freely in faith. There's not a thing wrong with eating food in moderation. Uh, if, on the other hand, the thought of fasting 
or saying to yourself, I'm going to skip a meal. If that brings panic to you, you may just be suffering from a fastophobia. Okay? Haven't there been times because of work or play that you've missed a meal? Did you survive? Okay? If it's important enough, you will miss a meal. Uh, can we get to the point where it's more important and rewarding to feast on God than on food? Remember Jesus said to his tempter, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. If Jesus expected his followers to fast, is it possible that the Holy Spirit might prompt all of us to fast at certain times? And perhaps this prompting comes through a need. You need stronger prayer life. You need guidance for a difficult matter. You need deliverance from a problem. You're repentant. All these and others can be promptings to fast and to experience the grace that would give, God would give you through fasting. Again, if you've got a medical condition, you're pregnant or nursing, other things, get competent medical advice. But if you've never fasted before and you feel you are called to do that, start with maybe a meal or two. Okay? And work up if you want to from there. But you might want to consider starting. Instead of looking for excuses, look for ways in which to experience the grace of God through occasional fasts which have a specific spiritual purpose. Now that we've said all that, let's get back to our passage. Okay? It's clear that Jesus condemns trying to get attention for fasting, to appear more spiritual. All this uh, was to be self-centered uh, in our actions. The same warning would apply to the rest of our Christian walk, whether pious looks or attitudes, dress or giving uh, noticeably, public praying or serving. Again, when we fast or do any of these things in that way, we have our reward. Okay, that's it. So, how should we fast? Jesus tells us, when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, uh, but by your Father who is in secret. You know, that doesn't mean we go in the opposite direction and we uncharacteristically put on, you know, really nice clothes, or we, may, we wear a fake smile when we fast, okay? Uh, it just means that we are ourselves. We don't put on anything that's unnatural, or a false front. In effect, what Jesus says is, forget about other people, even forget about yourself, and focus on knowing Him, uh, and praising Him, and working for His honor and glory. In, in short, when you fast, all you got to do is act naturally. Some of you get that. All right. Really, the only thing that matters is that we're right with, we're in communion with, and we're pleasing our Father. He knows not only what we do in secret, but He knows our hearts. The great, the great comfort in fasting with the right motive for a spiritual purpose is this. Our Father who sees in secret, in His time and in His way, will reward you. Father, we are all learning. And I am convicted by my avoidance of fasting for the right reasons. 
Lord God, I pray that you would work on all of us here and help us to understand, not to get into a routine of fasting, but rather to consider opportunities when fasting would draw us closer to you. When we can bring glory and honor to you, when we can sharpen our focus on what the Holy Spirit is trying to teach us. Father, we give you all the praise and all the glory today and desire to do nothing else. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.